uh, humble Puritan minister once said that God considers his holiness to be the true luster of his character as that by which he will be best known. This seems to be the case for, as many have observed, the Bible calls God holy more than anything else, more than sovereign, more than just, more than merciful or loving. When we think of God, how, how often does His holiness come to our minds? When we think of God, how often do we think of Him in all of His glorious and radiance and purity? And otherness. If there is anything that so starkly reveals the difference between the Creator and the creature, it must be God's holiness. And the way the Bible describes God's holiness should set us to wonder how is it that we could ever draw near Him? How is it that we could have a relationship with Him? After all, the book of Isaiah says that God is holy, holy. Holy. Isaiah repeated that words to emphasize just how holy the holy God is. And the same thing happens in the book of Revelation. There again, God is proclaimed as holy, holy, holy. That description is never, never applied to any fallen creature in the scripture. No fallen creature is proclaimed as holy, holy, holy. So how can we know this holy God. And perhaps more importantly, how can we come to be known and loved and forgiven and made holy by Him? Well, this is what we turn to think about this morning in our study of Psalm 99. If you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn to Psalm 99 in your Bibles. And if you're using one of the Bibles provided, then you should be able to find the passage on page 500. Page 500. As I've mentioned before, the the psalms that we've been studying this summer are a part of a collection of songs and hymns and poetry that rejoice and celebrate God's sovereign rule as the king over his people and over his creation. Traditionally, Psalms 93 through 99 have been grouped together as a collection of psalms, uh, royal psalms, proclaiming the regal nature of Yahweh's realm and rule. These were songs that were enthusiastically sung by the people of Israel. In contrast to some other sections of uh, the Psalms, these Psalms do not dip into discouraging times and emotions for the people of Israel. Instead, these are triumphant poems and songs, rejoicing in God's creative power and remembering His redemptive love. Israel has good reason to recount these things, for they knew firsthand that God created the world and all that is in it. They knew firsthand God's redeeming power too as He saved and rescued them from slavery in Egypt. God settled His people in Canaan, the land that He promised to give them. He even gave them a king to rule over them. Still, even though God had kindly provided a human king for them, that king was meant to be but a humble representative of God Himself, the one who is the ultimate king of creation and His people. Psalm 99 again calls us to consider who this king is, and it reminds us that he is worthy to be worshipped, honored, and obeyed. Psalm 99 reminds us that our God and king is holy. Three times we are reminded of this truth in the psalm. We're told that God is holy in verses 3 and 5 and 9. And if I had to summarize the thrust of this psalm in one sentence, it would be this. God is holy. 
It's that simple. That's what this psalm is about. It's about God being holy. Through this psalm, we learn that all that God is, all that He loves, all that He does, reveals that He is holy. So we'll study Psalm 99 in three sections under three headings. First, all that God is reveals that He's holy. All that God loves reveals that He is holy. And thirdly, all that God does reveals that He is holy. Let's begin with our first point. All that God is reveals that He is holy. All that God is reveals that we hold, He is holy. And as we do, read uh, the first three verses of Psalm 99. Read Psalm 99, verses 1 to 3 with me. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. I should mention right up front that these three categories of, of what the Lord is, loves, and does are inseparably connected. Uh, we're going to see significant overlap in these three points throughout the psalm. And we see right here, we see it right here in the, the opening three words of Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. We could, we could arguably put this statement in the category of something that the Lord does. And we would not be wrong for doing so. But in truth, the Lord reigns because of who He is. Yes, it is something He does. Not to mention something that He loves. But His right to reign is established by virtue of who He is. He is the Lord. And because He is the Lord, He reigns. He is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He's the author of all life, of everything. And because He is the Lord and author of all things, He has the right to express His good authority, His rule and reign over all things. And there's something that we should remember about who our God is. He is the Lord, all capital letters you might see there. Whenever you see that word Lord in all capital letters, you should know that it's a reference to the name of Yahweh. One of the first places where we're given great insight into the meaning of the name of the Lord is in Exodus 3, where Yahweh, the Lord, commands Moses to go and to rescue his people from Egypt. And what we learn about God's name there is that it means, I am the one who is and will be, or I am who I am and I will be who I will be. God's name not only reveals his independence and self-existence, but since he reveals his name in the context of His saving purposes toward His people, we know that the God who is and will be is faithful and will be faithful to His people. His name reveals a holy commitment to call a holy people to Himself. God's name reveals His intentions to form a relationship between Himself and His people. And the people of God are comforted by the very character of God. They, they tremble before Him, but they do so in hope, knowing that their holy God will remain holy, entirely committed to their good. God's enemies, on the other hand, tremble before Him in despair and fear of defeat. This is what Moses proclaimed in Exodus chapter 15, verse 15. After God had shown Himself holy and faithful to His people and freeing them from Egypt, Moses wrote this, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Even the enemies of God recognize His holy power and might, and so they tremble. 
As I said, that the people of God, however, recognize that for them there is great comfort in this truth that the Lord reigns. This motif of the Lord reigning doesn't simply appear in the first three words. No, it, it also appears in the second half of verse 1 there, where the psalmist says that God is enthroned upon the cherubim. And it, it appears in verse 2, where we're told that the Lord is exalted over all the peoples. We should remember that the Lord being enthroned upon the cherubim is a, a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a, a piece of furniture in the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament. It was the place, it was to be placed in God's earthly palace. And it represented the place where God dwelt. It was God's earthly footstool, a concept that's going to be mentioned in verse 5. And it was the center of the worship of the people of Israel. Only those who have the right to sit on thrones do so. The few remaining monarchies around the world have clear and strict protocols on who is to be the next heir to the throne. And there's only one throne to be occupied, one seat to be sat upon. Those who do not have a right to the throne have no right to sit on the throne, nor do they have a right to set up a rival throne. When we think about the Lord, we see that the Lord sits upon the sovereign throne of the universe because He has the right to the throne. No one else has a right to His throne. He and He alone reigns. And He and He alone reigns because of who He is. And we remember that these words, the Lord reigns, and all of the imagery associated with the truth that the Lord reigns comes in the midst of a psalm of praise. We should be struck by how comforting this truth is. Because the Lord reigns, He holds all things together. Because He reigns, our lives have meaning. Because the Lord reigns, history is headed somewhere. And so are we. But apart from His reign, history and our lives have no direction or purpose. And the world would fall apart. Because God reigns, He is worthy of worship, worthy of lives that tremble before Him in hope. Because God reigns, nothing happens by accident. Everything has a divinely designed purpose. And though we sometimes cannot see God's purposes in exercise, in the exercise of His reign, we know that because of who He is and what He has promised, they're good. Sometimes God's divine designs are difficult to discern, but we are to keep trusting Him, for His reign is rooted in an unfailing commitment to bring His people eternal good. And that is because He is good. He is the same Lord who spoke to Moses and assured him of his unfailing, holy love for his people. When everything around us seems unsettled, we can rest knowing that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Children, I wonder what makes you feel secure in this life. What settles your heart when your, your circumstances are tough or difficult? Talk to your parents about how they find security in who God is. Talk to them about how the truth that God reigns is a comfort and reassurance to them. Ask them to share with you how the truth of who God is reassured them and carried them through difficulty. I trust that, that would be an encouraging conversation to have with them and a great opportunity for your parents to glorify God and praise Him for His good and gracious and holy character.
The, the imagery of God reigning in these verses is underscored by language that lifts him up too. So we've seen uh, God reigning, we've seen language of enthronement, him sitting and reigning, but we've also seen language that lifts him up. The language of enthronement is, is there. Um, but look at the language of, of verse 2. The psalmist speaks of the greatness and the exalted nature of God. He even calls the peoples of the earth to praise God for His great and awesome. Everyone is invited, not just the residents of Zion, not just Jews, but Gentiles alike. All the peoples of the earth are called to praise God. They're called to recognize who God is and worship Him as He is. Not to worship a figment of their imagination or who they might like God to be, but to worship Him for who He is. He is utterly different than everyone else. Not only does he reign like no one else with no rival, not only is he to be worshipped like no one else with no other idols before him, not only is he to be exalted like no one else with no one receiving the same praise, but he is holy like no one else. As Revelation 15.4 says, For you alone are holy. When the Bible speaks about God being holy, several ideas are, are meant to come to our minds. When we think of God's holiness, we should certainly think of His purity. He is perfectly pure, righteous, and free from sin. But there is a reason for this, and that is because fundamentally God's holiness communicates that He is holy, completely other. He is completely separate, not just from sin and wickedness and unrighteousness, but from everyone and everything. There is literally no one like Him. Even though we are made in His likeness, we are not like Him. God is transcendent, set apart, and different. This is not only the reason for the language of exaltation, but it's also the reason for the people trembling and the earth quaking. When we truly come to know who God is, we cannot but help be rattled to the core if we do not know that we have His forgiveness. And yet our holy God makes Himself known to His people and He dwells with them. We'll think more about how this can be in a few minutes. But notice in verse 2, we're told that the Lord is great in Zion. He's with His people. God dwells among His own people. Our God is holy, so unlike us, and yet He dwells with us. This is to our joy and to our delight. Our holy God is the one and the only one who could make this possible. And isn't it just amazing to think that He actually longs to be with His people, to be with you, to be with me. Given who He is and who we are, we should always be amazed by His gracious, condescending, and holy love toward us. Having considered how all that God is reveals His holy character, let's turn now and briefly consider our second point. All that God loves reveals that He is holy. All that God loves reveals that He is holy. And as we do, read Psalm 99, verses 4 and 5 with me. The King in His might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Well, we have discovered that our God is holy. He his exalted reign and His great name make that abundantly clear to us. The worship that He receives, the response that the earth gives to His very character, quaking, reminds us of this. But also what the Lord loves reveals to us that our God is holy. In verse 4, 
The psalmist tells us the king, that's the Lord, the king in his might loves justice. As we've already mentioned, holiness is, uh, is in part related to ethical norms. The very notion of God's holiness is embedded with principles of purity and righteousness and justice. God loves that which reflects His holy character. And we see here that our God in His might loves justice. I find this to be a fascinating turn of phrase. The King in His might loves justice. Justice is what He is. Our God and our King defines the very measure of justice. He gives justice its meaning and it is just what He loves. Justice is what God has established and we see that, when the psalmist continues on by saying, you have established equity. God has established a standard of justice that is even-handed. It's not lopsided or unrighteous. How could an unrighteous or unfair or uneven standard of justice come from the God who is perfectly holy and just? It cannot, and it does not. Wherever God revealed himself to his people, he has established justice and equity. In the garden, God gave Adam and Eve a righteous rule to obey. At Mount Sinai, God gave the people of Israel His righteous and just law. When you read through God's laws in the Old Testament, the equity that the psalmist mentions here is not hard to see. Not only does He establish a just and equitable measure, but He operates by it. As the psalmist says, You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. You can tell what a person loves by what they pursue. God loves justice. He establishes it. He pursues it. He executes it. And we would expect nothing else from Him. This too shows us how He is holy and we are not. We do not always establish fair and even-handed standards. And even when we do, we often do not operate by them. We don't operate by them because we don't love justice like He does. No one exercises justice like God. Remember, a part of God's holiness is also that He's holy other. He is different, transcendent. God exercises justice with precise and holy perfection. And, and what is more, God exercises it powerfully in His might, the psalmist says. Who, exercise, who exercises justice with the strength that God does? It is no surprise that the psalmist calls us in verse 5 to exalt the Lord our God and to worship at his footstool. We praise God for who he is and for what he loves. He loves justice. And we praise God that he reveals his love for justice through his pursuit and exercise of it. God's love for justice reveals that he is holy. And no wonder the psalmist declares a second time, holy is he. Now a continual application of, of God's holiness throughout the scriptures is that his people are to be holy as he is holy. In other words, to be holy in a like manner. We see that in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 45, and in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Now, while we will never be holy in, the, in exactly the same manner or measure as God is, nevertheless, we can reflect something of God's holiness in our lives through spirit-empowered, gospel-driven, faith-fueled effort. One of the ways that we can pursue that is by loving the justice and equity that God loves. In whatever positions of authority God has placed us in, we ought to reflect His holy character and establish just and equitable standards. And we ought to execute them. If we have the privilege of employing others, 
or overseeing others, then we should provide a just wage. If we have the privilege of grading papers or homework, then the grades that we issue should be based upon the same standards. If we have the privilege of writing office policies, then they should not single out a particular individual or groups of individuals that, you know, we feel like annoy us. So we just want to kind of write a little policy that's going to just move them to the side so it doesn't bother us. That would not be executing justice. There are several ways that we can display our love for what God loves. And we should give ourselves to reflecting the holiness of God in these ways. Even if our reflection of His holy character is but a faint reflection. Finally, let's turn now and consider our third point. All that God does reveals that He is holy. All that God does reveals that He is holy. And as we do, read Psalm 99, verses 6 to 9 with me. Psalm 99, verses 6 to 9. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies in the statute they gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. The the sudden reference to Moses and Aaron and Samuel is is somewhat surprising. Uh, However, if if we step back and remember that you can see what a person loves by what he does, then we can see that what, what the psalmist is doing, Moses and Aaron and Samuel were instrumental in the implementation and adherence to God's law. Do you see the logical steps that the psalmist is taking? God is holy in and of himself. All that God is reveals that he is holy. And if that's the case, it's only natural for God to tell us that he loves holiness. What we, what we see what God loves in his law. God's law shows us the pattern of his holiness. But then what did God do? God gave his people men, priests, to explain his law, his holy law, to his people. Moses received God's law on Mount Sinai and shared it with God's people. Aaron made sure that the priests of Israel understood God's law and were equipped to live holy lives before the holy God according to his holy law. And God used Samuel to teach his people afresh what it meant to live under God's holy lordship. These men were holy. They had a unique, special, uh, unrepeatable relationship with the Lord. Uh, They they would call out to God in prayer and God would audibly answer them. He would answer them in such a way that was authoritative and binding for all of God's people and for them. He, He spoke unique and holy words to these men. And as the psalmist says, he spoke to them in the pillar of the cloud. God made himself physically and visibly manifest them personally. While at the same time protecting them and shielding them from his holy face. The psalmist says that they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. And what he means to communicate here is is not that these men perfectly abided by God's law. Uh, We'll see in verse 8 that they uh, were sinners and in need of grace too. Sure, they kept much of God's law. They did try to live lives according to God's holy word. And in that, that way, they were examples to the people of God. But what the psalmist, when the psalmist says that they kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave him, he's saying that they, 
like the New Testament apostles, were bearers and custodians of God's truth. They would hear from God and speak His holy words to His people so that God's people might be holy as God is holy. In this way, these men had a, again, a special, unique, repeatable, unrepeatable relationship with the Lord. And the psalmist is telling us what God has done. God has given His people men to teach them about God's holy character and will. And after communicating in verse 7 that the Lord gave the people of Israel holy men to teach them about God's holy will, the psalmist then tells us something surprising. He tells us something else that our holy God does. He tells us that God was a forgiving God to them. These men sinned. And yet the holy God forgave them. Let, let's, let's, let's think about this. Let's think about two things in particular. Let's first think about what forgiveness is. We'll consider what it means for God to forgive. And then I want to think about what sin is. And then we can try and put the, the pieces of the puzzle together for what it means for God to forgive sin. What, what is forgiveness? What, what does it mean for God to forgive? Um, Chris Bronze has written an, written an excellent book entitled Unpacking Forgiveness. So if you want an extended treatment on what forgiveness is, I'd encourage you to take a look at his book called Unpacking Forgiveness. Uh, but this is his definition that he gives of what forgiveness is after much kind of biblical exegesis explanation. This is the definition of forgiveness that he provides. I think it's a good one. Uh, Chris Braun says that God's forgiveness is a commitment by the one true God to graciously pardon those who repent and believe so that they are reconciled to Him. Now that definition contains five elements, but let me just bring out two for now. Forgiveness includes pardon. In other words, our sins are no longer counted against us. Forgiveness also includes reconciliation. In other words, when God forgives, our relationship with Him is restored. Our fellowship is restored. God's forgiveness is a gracious pardon and a loving invitation to full fellowship with God. Forgiveness is wonderful. And it is, all what we, is, is what we all need. For sin stands between us and God. Our sins stand between us and God. So now let's, let's remember the gravity of what sin is and why we need to be forgiven. When we sin, we are expressing that we are not only unhappy with the world that God has given us to live in and our circumstances in it, but that we are also unhappy with the Holy God who reigns over it. We don't want God to reign over the world. Rather, we want to be the ones who reign over the world. So we, we dethrone God in our sin. Only when God is off the throne can we be on it and shout orders about how we would like things to be in our lives. Now, a number of uh, men in the church are, are reading through a book, and this past week uh, we read through a chapter in this book by Paul Tripp uh, at our men's breakfast, and th it, this chapter addressed the reality of sin, what it really is. And, and sin, uh, Paul Tripp effectively said, is living as if there is no God, living as though he has no claim on our lives or as though he has no say in what we think or feel or do. When we sin, we live as though we deny the truth of verse 1, that the Lord reigns. When we sin, we deny that truth, that the Lord reigns. When we sin, we are God-denying fools, even if just for a moment. What is more, every sin, even if it's just one sin, is an offense against the holy and eternal God. 
And therefore, it deserves a holy and eternal punishment. So, how can a God who is holy, in and of himself, how can a God who loves justice, hates iniquity, establishes equity, and pursues righteousness, forgive those who have violated his holiness? This is a question that's not only relevant to verse 8, but a question that's relevant for us today. How can God be holy, loving justice, and yet forgive our sins? The answer to this question is in verse 8. Read verse 8. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. At one level, we might be inclined to see a fulfillment of this avenging of wrongdoing in something uh, like God's preventing Moses from entering into the promised land of Canaan. Uh, You you may recall that when Moses was leading the people of Israel through the wilderness, uh, Moses sinned against God. The Lord spoke to Moses in Numbers chapter 20, verse 12, uh, saying, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Moses sinned. Moses ultimately did not enter the promised land of Canaan. And as I said, we we might be inclined to look back on that event and see God avenging, dealing with their wrongdoings. But I don't think that's quite right. You see, sin against our holy and eternal God must be punished in His holy and eternal wrath if He is truly to avenge their wrongdoing in accordance with the justice that He loves. Preventing Moses... And the wilderness generation from entering into the promised land of Canaan was devastating. But it was temporal. It wasn't eternal. Our God is eternal. And when we sin against our eternal God, holy justice demands that sin be eternally punished. God, in His holy justice, eternally avenges the wrongdoings of His enemies. And this word avenger in verse 8 is wrathful. It is a harrowing word. It is a disturbing and distressing and dreadful word to hear. Think about it. The king who in his might loves justice has the power to bring the full and infinite force of his holy wrath to bear on wrongdoing. Who could withstand such an avenger? God is seeking just retribution against sin. And He is not wrong for doing so. He is right and just to do so. We would not call an earthly judge just by allowing a condemned and guilty murderer to escape punishment. Since every sin must be punished in order for God to be just, every sin must be punished. So how does God forgive Moses and Aaron and Samuel? How does he eternally punish their sins? How does he avenge the wrong that they have done and still forgive? How does he pardon and reconcile them to himself? God forgives Moses the sins of Moses and Aaron, Samuel, and all of his people by avenging their wrongdoing and our wrongdoing on his own son, 
Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6, that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. All that Moses and Aaron and Samuel proclaimed in the law and practiced in their priesthood pointed forward to the holy work of Jesus Christ. As one scholar has eloquently said, every one of those bloody offerings pointed to Jesus' bloody sacrifice for sin. Jesus, he voluntarily gave himself up for sinners. Of his own free will, he gave himself up for sinners. He gave up his throne in heaven to come to earth. Taking flesh to himself, God became man. Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man, and he lived the holy life that God's law required. He lived the life that Adam did not live in the garden, that the people of Israel did not live in the wilderness. He lived the life that neither Moses nor Aaron nor Samuel lived in ancient Israel. He lived the life that you and I have not lived in Arlington and Falls Church and Alexandria and D.C. and wherever our feet have trod. We have sinned against the holy God. We have chosen to take up our own laws for life, rejecting the ones that He has laid down in His Word. And we've all done it. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we all deserve to face the eternal punishment that our sins deserve. And yet, the good news of the Bible is this, that God has avenged the wrongdoings, our wrongdoings, of his own people upon his own son. This is what God was doing on the cross. He was pouring out his unmitigated, horrifying, just and punishing wrath upon his one and only son. For you and for me. If we would but give our lives to him in repentance and faith. This is what Jesus has done. And it is clear that only Jesus can be the savior of the world. Only Jesus can be the Savior because only He was both fully man and fully God. Being fully God and fully man, He could perfectly represent us and endure the eternal punishment for our sins. But that is not all. To assure us that we will not face God as an avenger and divine warrior against our sins, God raised Jesus from the dead three days after His death, proving to us all that our sins had been paid for fully punished and avenged. And now God calls us to come to Him, to believe in His Son, to believe that He lived the life that we've not lived, that He died the death that our sins deserved, that He was raised from the grave so that we might be forgiven and accepted as righteous in God's sight. This is what we are called to believe. This is the good news of verse 8. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then I want to urge you to come to Him in faith today. The reality is, is that God avenges all sin. He is just, and so He must punish all sin. And all of those who are outside of Jesus Christ will bear the eternal punishment for their sin. So come to Jesus Christ in faith Today, flee the avenging wrath of God and be found in Jesus Christ and be forgiven. And if you want to know more about what it means for God 
to save sinners like you and me, please do come and find me at the door after the service. I'd love to talk to you about this good news, about how we can be forgiven by the Holy God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, we must remember this good news each and every day. We must remember the forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ and revel in it. And there's something else that we need to remember too that we see in the experience of Moses and Aaron. While we must remember that all of our sins are punished in Jesus Christ at the same time, we also must not forget that our sin does sometimes carry with it consequences in this life. While Moses and Aaron have entered the promised land of heaven, they did not enter the earthly promised land of Canaan. Christ has forgiven us of all of our sin, but that does not mean that we will not endure any consequences for our sin in this life. In fact, we can be sure that God will discipline those whom He loves. He, he may not always discipline us for our sin, but He does discipline His children. And do you know why? Because our holy God wants us to be holy. This is one of the things that He does that reveals His holiness. So keeping one finger here in Psalm 99, turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. In the Bible's provided, it's page 1009. Page 1009. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. The author of Hebrews, he's in the middle of exhorting his readers to persevere in the faith. To keep trusting. And he even exhorts them to be encouraged in the midst of God's fatherly discipline. Start reading with me in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. The author of Hebrews writes... And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good. That. Why does God discipline us? Here is the reason. That we may share in His holiness. That we may share in His holiness. If you are a Christian, then your sins are forgiven. And if you are a Christian, in God's loving kindness, He may choose to discipline you so that you will share in His holiness. The Lord does this for our good. It is painful. No one enjoys discipline. But don't you see the Lord's motivation in it? He wants you, child of God, to share in His holiness. He wants you to make it safely home to heaven. So far from discouraging your faith, the Lord's discipline is meant to strengthen your faith. Now, turning back to Psalm 99. Turn back to Psalm 99. And ask yourself this question. How could Moses 
or Aaron or Samuel endure God's discipline of their sin? How could Moses endure the thought of not entering the promised land of Canaan? After all that he had been through, after knowing from the very beginning that the goal of his ministry was to lead the people of God into the land of Canaan, how could he bear the thought of not going in? In order to endure that chastisement, that discipline, there must have been something sweeter to him than the taste of milk and honey. And do you know what it was? It was the Lord's forgiveness of his sins. He knew that he had forgiveness. He knew that he had a share in God's holiness. And Christian, you have what Moses had. Though we do not deserve it, we have the forgiveness of our holy God. And we have his irreversible promise of sharing in his holiness in heaven. This is what we have. And what does this call forth from us? What response should we have to this good news? We should rejoice and give thanks and sing and be humbled. We should worship God for his kind and generous and gracious forgiveness. And this is what I want us to think about as we conclude. Verse 9 gives us our very response to this good news. It gives us the trajectory and direction that our lives should take. The psalmist has just said in verse 8 that God forgives us of our sins and avenges our wrongdoings. And we've seen how those go hand in hand. God cannot forgive and he cannot be just if he does not punish our sins. Our God is just and so he avenges our sins in Jesus Christ. And that is why we can be forgiven. And as Charles Spurgeon pointed out, this is the unique glory of God. That at the same time, he can express his holy hatred of our sin and wholly and completely forgive. We know this from the cross of Jesus Christ. Who is like our God? Who can so perfectly bring together wrath and mercy, punishment and peace, justice and justification? Is it no wonder that the psalmist then turns in verse 9 and says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. All that God is, all that He loves and all that He does reveals that He is holy, that He's worthy of exaltation, worthy of worship, and that He is our Lord. The Lord our God is holy. He belongs to us and we belong to Him. To him. Let's pray together.